bringing you the latest in tax credit news. This is Tax Credit Tuesday with your host, Michael Novogratik. The legislative challenges have been significant. We very much need the legislation. we got to produce housing. We're still in a very volatile industry. It's a challenging atmosphere for almost anyone. We can't get all these mixed signals and messages. If he doesn't have a bipartisan bill, nothing's going to happen. Alternative energy is still very expensive. Hello, I'm Michael Novogratik, and this is Tax Credit Tuesday. Today is Tuesday, September 21st, 2010. This week, we have a lot of ground to cover. To start with, we have several general tax credit news items of a legislative nature. They include the Small Business Jobs Bill and the Tax Extenders Update. We also have, on the administrative front, information about a recent IRS notice on economic substance, and I also want to discuss briefly the possible impact of Basel III on tax credit investments by banks. Then we'll turn to our various tax credit subtopics. In the Long-Commencing Tax Credit News Corner, I have information about the 2011 difficult-to-development areas. I also have information on last week's Treasury meeting of Long-Commencing Tax Credit stakeholders, a meeting in which I was fortunate enough to be able to attend, and I also have a brief update on an audit issue that's affecting some and not-for-profits that sponsor Long-Commencing Tax Credit partnerships. In the historic tax credit area, I'll examine the possible impact of a recent FASB lease accounting proposal on historic tax credit lease pass-through structures. Then I'll move on to renewable energy, and I'll discuss an IRS notice on the tax credit for coal, as well as three new reports about the renewable energy market. And finally, for our new market tax credit listeners, I have some interesting news about a CDFI fund job opportunity. So if you're ready, let's get started. So we start out this week with an update from Washington, D.C., Last week, I spent Monday through Friday in Washington, D.C., attending the Affordable Housing Tax Credit Coalition board meeting, as well as its general meeting, and I also participated in the LAHTC stakeholders meeting at the Department of Treasury. Furthermore, I met with numerous senators, members of Congress, and their staff. The first item to discuss is the Small Business Jobs Bill. As many of our listeners know, last week, the Senate passed the Small Business Jobs Act by a vote of 61 to 38. The bill is expected to be passed by the House as is, without amendment. The House recognizes the difficulty that the bill faces in the Senate, and it's not likely to change. As such, they'll pass it as is, even though the House has some items they would prefer to change. The measure includes a number of provisions that are meant to increase access to capital, as well as encourage investment. For example, the bill increases the maximum amount that a taxpayer may expense under Internal Revenue Code Section 179 to $500,000 per year beginning in 2010 and also applying in 2011. It also increases the phase-out threshold to $2 million. The bill also extends the carryback period for eligible small business credits under Section 38 from one year to five years. The bill also allows taxpayers to use these eligible small business credits to offset both regular and the alternative minimum tax. Both provisions are effective for credits determined in the taxpayer's first tax year beginning after 2009. Now this means that for calendar year taxpayers, tax credits generated in 2010 by small businesses can be carried back five years. However, any tax credits carried to 2010 but not generated in 2010 will not be eligible for this five-year carryback. Of most significance to the low-income tax credit community, the bill extends through 2010 the ability to expense 50% 
of the cost of personal and certain longer-lived property. Generally, to qualify, however, one must place the property in service by the end of 2010, so there's only a couple of months left. Special transition rules apply to longer live property not placed in service in 2010. To learn more about these transition rules, I invite you to contact a Novigrad and Company partner in one of our offices near you. And if you have broader questions about some of these other rules, I'd also encourage you to contact a Novigrad and Company partner or professional in one of our offices near you. Now, a summary of the bill's tax provisions was published by the Joint Committee on Taxation. You can find a copy of this summary online at www.novaco.com. Simply click on the Hot Topics section and then choose the link for the Small Business Jobs Tax Act. To learn what the tax provisions of the Small Business Jobs Tax Act could mean for the local business tax credit community, I would encourage you to join Novigrad and Company for our 17th annual Affordable Housing Tax Credit Conference that will be September 30th to October 1st in San Francisco, California. So now, moving from the Small Business Jobs Bill on to tax extenders, on the same day that the Senate passed the Small Business Jobs Bill, Senator Max Baucus introduced a revised extenders measure. Entitled the Job Creation and Tax Cut Act of 2010, it includes provisions from H.R. 4213, which was entitled the American Jobs and Closing Tax Loopholes Act. We've been referring to this as the Tax Extenders Bill. The provisions that I think are of most interest to our listeners would include the following, and they're in this uh, revised tax extenders measure, measure. An extension for one year through 2010 of the Section 1602 Long-Term Tax Credit Cash Grant Exchange Program, a $1 billion one-time capitalization of the National Housing Trust Fund, an extension for one year through 2010 of the New Market Tax Credit Program, at the $5 billion allocation amount, a provision to allow the new market tax credit to offset the alternative minimum tax for qualified equity investments made between March 15, 2010 and January 1, 2012. It also includes the two-year extension through 2011 of the place and service date for properties financed with Gulf Opportunity Zone credits. The bill also includes a one-year extension through 2010 of a, provi- of a provision that allows states to waive certain rules that limit their ability to use tax and housing bonds to provide loans to people that wish to acquire residences in federally declared disaster areas. There's also an exemption from the AMT for taxes and private activity bonds issued in 2011 and current refunding of private activity bonds issued after 2003 and refunded during 2011. There's also a one-year extension of the Federal Home Loan Bank's authority to guarantee tax-exempt economic development bonds. And then the last item I want to particularly note is it includes a one-year extension through 2011 of the Build America Bonds program. Upon the bill's introduction, Senator Baucus requested that the Senate give unanimous consent. This would have expedited its consideration. Unfortunately, the request was rejected. This means the bill will be subject to consideration on the Senate floor, which makes its chance of passage before the next congressional recess less likely. The Housing Advisory Group reports that Senator Baucus hopes to try again to get a vote on this extenders bill in the next few weeks before the Senate leaves town for the elections. At this time, however, it does not appear that there are sufficient votes to pass the new version. Additional changes could be made to try to achieve the necessary votes, but the Housing Advisory Group and others predict there's only a slim chance that this could happen in the next few weeks. Late last week also, reports began to surface that indicated that lawmakers might combine tax extenders, AMT relief, the Bush tax cut extensions, estate tax issues, and other matters in a massive on-the-bus tax bill 
that would be passed during a lame duck session that's already scheduled to be convened after the midterm elections. We'll also continue to watch the status of the possible extension of the Section 1603 Energy Grant in lieu of ITC program. This program expires at the end of this year, and a number of our clients are actively trying to get their projects under construction this year so that they'll be eligible for the grant. If if the program was extended for a year, such efforts wouldn't be as critical. Now, an omnibus tax bill that I mentioned earlier that might might be passed in a lame-duck session of Congress could be an excellent vehicle for extending the Section 1603 Energy Grant Program. To stay up to date on the bill's progress in Congress, please follow me on Twitter. I'll post tweets as I hear of any new developments. The IRS was also active last week. They published the much-awaited notice on economic substance. On September 13th, the Internal Revenue Service issued Notice 2010-62. This notice provides interim guidance with respect to the codification of the economic substance doctrine. Now, as listeners will recall, the Economic Substance Doctrine was codified in Section 77010 of the Internal Revenue Code and Related Amendments. And these uh, provisions, Section 7701 and the Related Amendments, apply various penalty provisions that were enacted pursuant to the Health Care and Education Reconciliation Act of 2010. The notice does not provide specific guidance, this is the IRS notice, other than that taxpayers should rely on existing authorities to determine whether the economic substance doctrine is relevant to a transaction. 7701-0 only applies when the economic substance doctrine is relevant to a transaction. If a transaction is required of economic substance to be respected, then Section 77-0101 provides that the transaction will be treated as having economic substance only if the transaction changes in a meaningful way, apart from federal income tax effects, the taxpayer's economic position, and the taxpayer has a substantial purpose, apart from federal income tax effects, for entering into the transaction. Notice 2010-62 states that the IRS will continue to rely on relevant case law under the common law economic substance doctrine in applying the above two-pronged test. The IRS will also rely on judicial authorities relating to each of the two prongs of the test to determine whether the applicable requirement is satisfied. Now, of note for those in the tax credit community, the IRS will accept comments on Notice 2010-62 until December 3, 2010. The IRS says it's particularly interested in comments regarding disclosure requirements. Now, currently, both the Novogratic LHDC Working Group and the Novogratic New Market Tax Credit Working Group are working on comments on the notice and will submit them by the December 3rd date. Most practitioners, in assessing the impact of this notice on low-income housing tax credit, new market tax credit, historic tax credit, renewable energy tax credit, and other general tax credit transactions, found the notice to be neutral. It wasn't particularly positive, wasn't particularly adverse. There was, uniformly, disappointment, however, that the IRS did not specifically say that they would follow the footnote that was issued by the Joint Committee on Taxation that essentially exempted government-sanctioned tax credits from the economic substance test. However, While we were disappointed that the IRS did not formally specify that they would follow this footnote, we were also glad to know that the IRS did not indicate they would not follow the footnote. So in short, no guidance on the matter is better than adverse guidance. You can find a copy of Notice 2010-62 online at www.novaco.com. Go to Hot Topics, click on the link to the Economic Substance webpage. We're also going to examine the notice in more detail in the October issue of the Novogratz Journal of Tax Credits. 
Switching on to the implications of the Basel III Accords, as I mentioned last week, Novogratz and Company is currently examining how the newly released Basel III regulations might affect tax credit investing. And we would like to hear from our listeners with respect to their thoughts. You can send your thoughts to cpas at novaco.com. The new regulations raise the minimum Tier 1 capital from 2% to 4.5% of assets. Now, these rules are phased in over eight years with milestones along the way. The rules still need to be approved by the G20 nations in November, and if approved, the new rules do not take effect until January 1, 2013. Many analysts believe that the new capital requirements will force many banks in Europe to raise more capital. While most U.S. banks, most analysts believe, already comply with the new rules. Initial conversations with investors indicate that it's still too soon to tell what, if any, impact these new new rules will have on tax credit investing. Initial reactions were that any impacts would be minor. Now, we're going to continue to investigate, and we're going to discuss this issue further in future podcasts as we learn more about the possible impact on tax credit investing. Now, one item we are reviewing is the impact of the changes in how deferred tax assets are treated in calculating minimum capital requirements. We're also reviewing the level of reserves, and when that's going to change, that have to be held for various tax credit investments. Essentially, the higher the level of reserves or capital charge, the greater the yield that the investor will need in order for it to be profitable to make a tax credit investment. So, so stay tuned, and we're going to report on Basel III in more detail in the coming weeks as developments warrant. In low-income housing tax credit news, I want to start with information about 2011 difficult development areas. As listeners will recall from last week's podcast, the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development recently designated difficult development areas, DDAs, for the low-income housing tax credit, LIHTC, in 2011. HUD makes new DDA designations annually. LHTC projects that are in DDAs, or Qualified Census Tracts, are eligible for as much as 30% more low-income tax credit subsidy than projects not located in DDAs or in Qualified Census Tracts. The biggest difference in this year's area designations is related to the expiration of the Gulf Opportunity Zone, or GoZone, provisions that created GoZone DDAs. Those DDAs expire on December 31, 2010, and the new notice does not designate GoZone DDAs for 2011. Now, compared to last year's list, 26 metro areas and 168 non-metro areas were deleted. Conversely, only one metro area was added and only 17 non-metro areas were added. The biggest losses were sustained in the GoZone areas, namely in Texas and Mississippi, and this is because of the GoZone expiration. Texas lost 87 non-metro areas and Mississippi lost 35 non-metro areas. Louisiana also lost all of its metro DDAs, there were six last year, and they were all go-zone areas. Now, on the addition side, the only metro DDA that was added was the San Francisco metro area. The San Francisco metro DDA encompasses Marin County, San Francisco County, and San Mateo County. The last year that San Francisco was a DDA was 2005. Now, Novogratic has posted a list of the areas that were added and deleted in 2011. You can find it online at www.taxcredithousing.com. You can go to the Facts and Figures menu and click on the button for QCTs and DDAs. The list has, been, has separate tabs for metro information and for non-metro information. This information should be critical for planning for tax credit developers for 2011. 
Now, as many listeners will recall, I did mention last week that I was attending a Treasury Department meeting about the loan compensing tax credit. The meeting was held on September 15th, and it included a wide range of program stakeholders. HUD Deputy Assistant Secretary for Multifamily Housing, Carol Galante, led the meeting, and attendees included representatives from the IRS, White House Domestic Policy Council, Rural Housing Service, and HUD. Investors, syndicators, attorneys, accountants, etc. were also present. The goal of the meeting was to find ways to identify how to expand the LHTC investor base. Currently, the investor base is dominated by CRA investors. This domination leads to a two-tier tax credit equity market. You have high credit prices in CRA assessment areas, and you have lower or no demand in non-CRA assessment areas. At the meeting, attendees discussed several ideas. These ideas included broadening CRA assessment areas, developing structures to reduce real estate and tax credit recapture risk associated with loan-composing tax credit investments. Also, we discussed developing an active liquid secondary market and loan-composing tax credit interests, changing accounting rules to allow effective yield accounting treatment for non-guaranteed investments was discussed, as well as shortening the tax credit period to five years or allowing accelerated credit in the early years of the credit period, and potentially extending the tax credit carryback period to five years for existing credit carry-forwards, and for prospective or new long-term tax rate investments. At the end of the three-hour meeting, a straw poll was held to determine which ideas had the most support of the group. I should emphasize a non-binding straw poll. Uh, in, in terms of the results of that straw poll, broadening CRA in assessment areas and expanding the use of the effective yield method had the most support. These also had the least budget cost. A five-year credit term or accelerated credit did not have broad-based support because of the concern about tax cost. Now, if listeners have thoughts about any of these proposals or they have additional suggestions for broadening the LIHCC investor base, I would encourage you to send me an email. You can send the email to michael.novagradic at novaco.com. I'd love to hear your ideas. I'd also like to remind listeners that HUD Deputy Assistant Secretary Carol Galante is the keynote speaker at our annual Housing Tax Credit Conference next week in San Francisco. There's still space available, and you can sign up online at www.novaco.com events. Now, before we leave the LHTC discussion for this week, I would like to alert listeners to an issue that we learned about last week that's of interest to long-term tax credit not-for-profits. We've heard reports recently of long-compensing tax credit issues being raised during audits of not-for-profits. Specifically, there's been some question regarding the standards by which the IRS will conduct audits of existing 501c3 entities that serve as general partners or managing members of long-compensing tax credit partnerships or limited liability companies. There is some concern among LHTC professionals that some examining agents that are conducting these audits might not be familiar with the intricacies of Section 42 and how it interacts in the role of not-for-profits. If you're facing these audits, I would encourage you to contact my partner, Diane Rubin, in our San Francisco office. She's coordinating a number of such audits and has extensive experience in this area. She may be able to assist you. It would also be useful for us to hear more as to what's happening out in the field. Diane can be reached at 415-356-8000. In historic tax credit news, I want to discuss a recent FASB rule and the impact it could have on certain historic tax credit transactions. Last month, the Financial Accounting Standards Board proposed potentially significant changes in how leases are reported, with many more of them being reported on balance sheets for the first time. In the August 17th news release, FASB said that its right-of-use approach 
for reporting by lessees and lessors would result in a liability for payments arising under a lease contract and the right to use the underlying asset being included in the lessee's statement of financial position. It's basically putting more operating leases on financial statements as opposed to only capital leases. Now, FASB says that this accounting rule change would provide more complete and useful information to investors and other users of financial statements. BNA reports that in a study on off-balance sheet activity several years ago, that the staff of the Securities and Exchange Commission had urged FASB to tackle leases as one area that was most in need of improvements. Now, Novogratz companies currently analyze the potential impact of this proposal on the tax credit community, and specifically on historic tax credit lease pass-through structures. At this time, it doesn't appear that the change will have a significant impact on such structures from the tax credit investor's perspective. In large part, this is because fewer tax credit investors are consolidating the master tenant onto its uh, books. Now, it's true that the balance sheet of the lessees will be significantly different under the proposed lease accounting, but if the investors still continue to conclude they are not required to consolidate, then these rule changes are expected to have a minimal impact. Now, we're going to continue to evaluate the proposal, and we'll update you in future podcasts if anything changes. And in the meantime, if you have any questions about the proposed rule or how it could affect your historic tax credit or other tax credit transactions, I'd invite you to call my partner, Tom Bosha, at 216-298-9000. Or you could send him an email, thomas.bosha at novaco.com. That's T-H-O-M-A-S period B-O-C-C-I-A at novaco.com. In renewable energy tax credit news... I have a, r- information on a recent IRS notice, as well as the results of three studies. First, the IRS last week published Notice 2010-54. This notice sets interim guidance relating to the tax credit under Section 45. This is the Section 45 credit for refined coal. This interim guidance is pending the issuance of regulations, and this interim guidance supersedes Notice 2009-90. Now, 2009-90 also set forth interim guidance pending the issuance of regulations. Now, the new notice makes the following modifications. The definition of refined coal is revised. Certain processing of utility-grade coal is permitted to be taken into account in determining whether a qualified emission reduction has been achieved, and the testing protocols for determining emissions reductions are revised. In addition, the IRS says it's going to continue its no-rule policy concerning the place and service date for a facility. You can find a copy of the notice, 2010-54, online at www.energytaxcredits.com. And if you have more questions, you can contact Stephen Tracy, my partner in the San Francisco office, at 415-356-8000. Now, moving on, last week, Renewable Energy Advocates did hold a press conference. In this press conference, I called for extension of the Section 48-CAP-C Advanced Energy Project credit, as well as the Section 1603 cash grant program. They're both set to expire at the end of 2010. The U.S. Partnership for Renewable Energy Finance estimates that an extension of the 1603 grant program could impact as many as 104,000 jobs. Now, a white paper was released by the group that details the potential impact on jobs through the extension of the cash grant program. Earlier this summer, the partnership also published a white paper with observations on the renewable energy tax credit market. That report details how the investor pool has shrunk in recent years. According to the report, there were 20 tax equity market providers in 2007 and that the renewable energy tax credit market of 2007 was more than $6 billion. However, because of the recent recession, the number of tax credit market participants fell to 11 in 2009 
And then in 2010, another three to five tax credit equity providers are expected to leave the market. This is according to the group's estimates. Now, copies of the jobs analysis and the tax credit market observations are available online at www.energytaxcredits.com. Also, last week, the American Council on Renewable Energy, ACOR, released a report called Renewable Energy in America, Markets, Economic Development, and Policy in the 50 States. The report is available as an interactive online resource, as well as a comprehensive report in PDF form. The report compiles financial, renewable energy resource potentials, market, and policy information in one place. ACOR says it's intended to be an executive summary for all who are interested in the highlights of the renewable energy sector in every state. The report notes each state's highlights regarding their renewable energy market and recent economic development activity. Installed capacity and projects in development are provided for each state, and it provides a picture of which renewable energy resources are actually in development. Resource maps on the site highlight selected renewable resources within each state. Finally, the report includes a list of key policies in place within each state. A link to the report can be found online at www.energytaxcredits.com. I encourage all of our listeners to check out this report. Department of Energy also, in our third study, published a report on offshore resources. Specifically, on September 10th, the U.S. Department of Energy's National Renewable Energy Laboratory announced the release of a report that assesses the electricity-generating potential of offshore wind resources in the United States. Now, according to the report, 4,150 gigawatts of potential wind turbine nameplate capacity from offshore wind resources are available in the United States. The estimate does not describe the actual planned offshore wind development, and the report does not consider that some offshore areas may be excluded from energy development on the basis of environmental, human use, or technical considerations. A copy of the report, which is entitled Assessment of Offshore Wind Energy Resources in the United States, can be found online at www.energytaxcredits.com. Switching to new market tax credit news, the CDFI Fund is seeking a deputy director. The CDFI Fund announced last week that it has an opening for a deputy director. The position was established for the purpose of ensuring that the CDFI Fund operates in accordance with all applicable federal and treasury regulations and guidelines and to protect the CDFI Fund's grant-making authority. The deputy director will report directly to the director of the CDFI Fund and serves as a principal executive advisor on CDFI Fund operations and program processes. According to the CDFI Fund, the deputy director will be responsible for planning, coordinating, evaluating, and improving programs, as well as resource management. He or she will continually take the lead in developing operating procedures, policies, internal controls, and short and long-term strategic plans. The deputy director position is also responsible for the development, implementation, and recordation of performance measurements, as well as reporting systems, internal controls, and operating procedures. And then lastly, the notice notes that the deputy director is responsible for managing a group of senior managers and operations staff within the CDFI fund. More information is available about this position online. Simply go to www.usajobs.gov and search for CDFI fund. If you have any folks that you think would be interested in the position, I would encourage you to direct them to this website. Also, in other NMTC news, we have confirmed that Rosamond Martinez, who's the program manager for the New Market Task Force program, will be joining us at our New Market Task Force conference in Chicago next month. The conference is going to be held on October 20th and the 21st. 
If you're interested in registering for the conference, go to www.novaco.com. We already have over 240 numerical task credit industry participants registered for the conference, and it's still just it's still over 30 days away. This conference is going to be an excellent opportunity to both learn and network, and I'd encourage you to join me and my Novogratic colleagues at the conference. Well, that brings me to the end of this week's report. Please join me again next week for another edition of Tax Credit Tuesday. During the interim, you can stay up to date by following my tweets on Twitter. I also invite feedback on the Tax Credit Tuesday podcast. Please send us an email with your comments or with suggestions for topics that you'd like to hear discussed. You can send an email to cpas at novaco.com. This is Michael Novogratik, and I'll be back next Tuesday. Thanks for listening.